everyone. Thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. In this episode, I'm talking with Farah Karaiye, who's an architect, an entrepreneur, trainer, and motivator, who has some great advice for startups, as well as wonderful insights into sustainable design for buildings. Now, you are one of the more international guests that I've had on the show. You grew up in Iran. You lived in South Korea. You now live and work in Japan. You work with a very international company in Asia. They're also in Singapore. It's amazing. You really are doing a lot of work, kind of with a very wide world view. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. I actually was only born in Iran. I grew up in Europe. So I was in Italy and then we moved. I was I moved to France and Germany for a bit and then South Korea and Japan. Yes, and this company I work with, they have offices in Singapore and Thailand <laughs> and Japan. But I only run the MPO. Yeah, maybe that's true. I, I do not limit myself to considering countries or comparing them. I just do whatever I can out there. I, I love <laughs> it's that. very odd. And I, I love your, you. your title under your name of human. And I, <laughs> I really enjoyed reading an article, a high flyer article about you. It was in oh. Japanese, but Google, Google Sensei helped me to translate it. <laughs> Um, so it was it was really interesting and talking about your life in Japan, talking about places that you like, um, how you got interested in architecture. Um, I love that you were talking about the connection between nature and design is one of your favorite things. Is that right? Yes, it is. It's quite odd because when I was studying architecture and I was working as a designer, I used to, this is like years ago, I used to uh, design things with like mainly uh, nature and mainly I would say sustainability. At that time, you wouldn't even call it sustainability. We had this thing called green architecture. <laughs> Everyone used to use green architecture. No one knew. I remember I used to use mist inside buildings instead of air, air conditioning to cool areas down or stop demolishing and just renovating as much as we can. And I used I remember my supervisor constantly yelling at me, this doesn't make money. <laughs> this doesn't make money. <laughs> I was made fun of. <laughs> and now they're all trying to do that. <laughs> it's very yeah. interesting. Well, I, I was so sad to read that one of your projects in Japan, you had a great idea for how to incorporate the design around a beautiful ginkgo tree. But that design was not accepted yeah. because it would cost too much to maintain the trees. And I thought, oh, what a shame because <laughs> in the long term they would enjoy seeing the trees so much more than just the wall or something concrete so definitely nature is timeless uh let's let's look at one of the places you mentioned which you love in japan which i'd never heard of is the uchimura kenzo memorial stone church that's just so yes. impressive can you tell me about it 
it's actually quite interesting because instead of a lot of um a lot of architects or designers when you talk to them first and when they want to talk about materials everything that comes up is concrete tiles glass and so on so off but he actually was like you know what i'm going to use a local material in that area i'm going to use it and build this whole church with minimum impact to its surroundings so even if the entrance of it, you don't really feel like going inside a building. It feels like the, the ground, you're slowly, slowly walking and the walls, the stone walls slowly, slowly come up with you. So it's quite a very beautiful design. I would definitely, definitely advise whoever goes to that area. Karoizawa actually. So please do go enjoy and see it. It's very beautiful. Uh, it just looks amazing. And I'd yeah, never, I've never heard of it. Um, Karuizawa, <laughs> for anybody who, who doesn't know, is uh, not too far from Tokyo, is it? About two hours train or something? Yeah, yeah, it is. Actually, you can drive there in two hours. And I think, yes, to one hour and 40 minutes. Two hours, two hours with Shinkansen, I think, yes. Yeah. And this was a uh, American designer, is it? No, I think he's Japanese, from what I remember. Oh, really? And and the, his... According to the the website for the church, they said it's it's a U.S. architect, Kellogg, uh, Kendrick Kellogg. Actually, no. It, uh, no? Sorry, that's okay. Nineteen eighty-eight. Um, Oh, I think it's a collaboration. I think okay. there are two. One of them is the Kenzo-san who worked on it. And yes, yes, this one, of course, uh, I think, yes, his pictures are in his his memorial next to the building. Yes, it is. But I think there's another one that Kenzo-san designed uh, with him, very similar to this. Actually. Oh, lovely. I, I would love yeah. to talk about uh, some of the designs that you did because you were working with uh, Japanese architecture companies doing design. And then yes. I want to talk a little bit about your own business, the NND. <laughs> oh, yes, it's called New Norm Design. New Norm Design. Yes, NND. Yes, it's NND New Norm Design. I do, yes, I run NND and Impact Tech Japan. Impact Tech Japan is like an MPO for social change makers. We have a program with Nippon Foundation. We help social change maker programs. And NND New Norm Design, It's uh, it actually started exactly before Corona. And the issue with this is that we found that the old design do not consider all this aspect. At least in Japan, it's all about money. And there is this very older, like sensei kind of a person above you, tells you what to do. You want to do something new, but they never seen it. They're not interested in it. No one wants to talk about it. No one knows what sustainability is, what's 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 green design even. They think it's just putting a plant on it on a wall is green design. <laughs> Normally it dies after six months and they have to replace it. So so uh, we decided with my friends, actually we were five of us, we decided, you know what, why don't we start something new, a new style of design. That's why actually we were we were talking to someone, one more other person that he's not in the team anymore in the start. I was talking to him. I was going to call it, call it self-D. It means the self-design. It's going to be burned by himself. But he was like, no, I think you're you're starting a new norm. This is, this is definitely a new norm design. Let's see what we can do. And we started the new norm design through that. 
I love it was it. like, yeah, it was really, it was really completely like we're doing something new and this is not the norm. So let's make it a norm, <laughs> new norm design. It was just randomly chosen name. I love it. And and you are having so many of the designs have such a nice uh, use of natural light, uh, taking in the outside view, the nature with the architecture. Uh, let's talk about some of them. You were working for Wonderwall project. Before. I worked with Wonderwall, yes, for one year. I worked with Wonderwall for one year. We did this Ibiza toilet because I was the only architecture designer in their, their interior office. And they do a lot of luxury goods, like uh, shops and things like that. And I was like, you know what? I want to do something a little bit different. Do you have something different? And they are like, you have this toilet in a beast too. <laughs> no one wants to do. <laughs> Would you want to take that? I was like, yeah, sure. It's in a park. <laughs> it's a beautiful toilet. You did a wonderful job. It's, Thank you it's, so much. It's one of the few public toilets. I mean, Japan has nicer toilets even public toilets than other countries, I would have to say. But this is a gorgeous public toilet. So the use the use of light, light and trees is fabulous. Good job. Yes, thank you so much. I the, the reason why all the walls are going different locations is that because I didn't want to impact even a single tree. And there was randomly. And uh, another reason was that if you like kind of put a single design to like strictly after like a bit like 10 20 or even 50 years it loses its original integrity it look, starts to look old or out fashioned or not taken care of however if you do something that looks a bit more random doesn't look like it has completely been calculated every even if it is but if you look at it at the first stage it looks random it doesn't look old if you come even in 50 years you don't have to demolish it and rebuild it you just have to renovate it and just still keeps its original feeling to it i love that uh we we Thank talked you. in the series to an architecture professor and professional architect himself uh asby brown and he often talks about this relationship with making the design in the house or in the building where you can enjoy the natural view from the outside yes. in really unique way and then your even the small space feels so much bigger right you can feel yes feel more relaxed immediately i love it 100 and it's it's the design of inside out even with this toilet in the start all the walls were not supposed to be connected they were supposed to be slits open between the walls of course shibuya kubu didn't let that go it's like, it's like it's a toilet close it up <laughs> so we put light as you can see the led lights going around it is the areas that they were meant to be opening of course there's so many regulations but i agree with him inside out just bring the nature within the building and the the space inside is not the only space you have space outside is part of your space automatically yes call it the inside uh, outside in design i love it um I, and you also did a really cool project you did the interior for for this one what's it called i have an out outside picture actually really actually cool. the outside of it have you seen the todd's building in omoto sando I, I don't think I have a picture of the outside, but it's very cool. It has a lot of glass in the wall, right? Yes, uh, actually, let me, if I, if you search Todd's building, Omotosando, Itotoyo, Itotoyo is a very famous architect. 
he built this building 15 years ago and the concept is a tree. So the facade of the building looks like a branches of the tree and the little random glasses you see are supposed to be like openings between the branches. The issue with this is actually I actually worked with him before. I was an intern and I actually know some of his projects and this project personally. So they were looking for someone to to do their inside renovation completely changed. It was completely different. And they were looking for someone who can actually get the lead certificate from US because you need a sustainability certificate for these buildings. So I was like, oh, I'm up to the challenge. The clients were all over the place, France, Hong Kong, Italy, Milan, it's like all over the place. Wow. <laughs> we had meetings at 2 a.m. because France is like 5 p.m. at 2 a.m. <laughs> So it was like, I just wanted to quit, honestly, midway. After a year, I'm like, you just let me go. <laughs> I'm joking, but anyway. So the idea was that uh, I would completely have a story for inside. Instead of wasting a lot of money on expensive materials like golden frames and things, make it minimalistic and make it as recyclable as possible. And in the end, we got the gold certificate lead sustainability for this building. So I opened up the windows. There are a lot of places that there were just walls. I opened it up. I put gardens. I All the furniture are wood. There's no leather used. Most, actually, this brand, it's called Caring. Actually, they're the owners of Chanel and Gucci. And actually, this is their headquarters in Tokyo right now. That's their office headquarters. And, you know, they're like brands. But we are like, you want to go sustainable, so no leather goods. And there was, there was a huge story. And all even if you look at that little bookshelf, all the art on that bookshelf, they're mostly from women for women's empowerment or women artists, not very much maybe even known in Japan, that we went and bought their pieces and we put them on the shelves. Uh, these, the carpet on the front is handmade by a, a company called that is run by me leave women and it's silk and wool i didn't use any plastic carpets there's no like i minimized plastic or pvc use to nearly zero percent even the flooring the client was like no we want carpets carpets and i was like no no that messy wool it's expensive who's <laughs> gonna pay so we like sustainable make it wood you don't have to change it you just have to clean it a little bit and that's it because many people don't understand that architecture is responsible for nearly 45 percent of the world pollution all this energy that you're talking about, like you know, solar energy, wind energy, it's only 12%. World resources are only 12% of world pollution and CO2 emission. 45 to 50% is architecture. We are the ones who are responsible for it. But as it does not make any profit, and it doesn't, people believe it doesn't look as good as it should if it's too sustainable, no one wants to go that way. No one wants to talk about it. So they believe it's solar panel might help definitely more <laughs> than actually doing it inside the building. Our goal was to prove you can design minimalistically, but beautifully and very comfortably. And clients still thank me. And sometimes they even take me out for lunch even after a year. <laughs> so I'm happy about that project. That's wonderful. Do you find in your architecture projects that you're doing in Japan that you have to kind of teach these ideas that sustainability is an important part of architecture? Or is there kind of a base level of understanding? Like you mentioned, uh, they wanted LED certification. That's that's a good, pretty good level of understanding, right? 
Yes, you have to 100% teach about everything. And actually right now we don't have a base for material sustainability. I'm trying to build a platform that can define the base. As right now I have to define piece by piece. So why is this better than this one? You have to make a huge form and explain everything. And sometimes even educate uh, clients that REF for now is it's cheap, but in 10 years time, the maintenance cost is completely different. The value that brings to your building is different. The quality is different. So you have to explain in charts and ons and offs, this kind of little tricks that uh, honestly could be done much, much faster throughout uh, like a more regulated kind of thing which Japan does not have. And uh, I believe it depends on the client as well. Like as, as a female designer, a foreigner as well in this country, I was lucky enough because my clients for these projects, most of my projects are foreigners as well. So we can sit down together and look at past ups and downs. I not see many of very like traditional Japanese, conservative Japanese sitting down and discussing sustainability, <laughs> to be honest. And they normally, like when they want to make a contract, instead of doing by project, they just want you to help the small parts. And then when you come up, talk about sustainability, you have a huge wall in front of you saying, so how much money does that make us? <laughs> you know, Like it's everything needs to be very precisely on the budget for them to the point they don't care in 10 years time. I guess that's a difference. If you have a client that understands sustainability as a base, you can educate them. But if someone who doesn't see a value in it, no matter how much time you spend educating, does not really give you the value back. That is such a good point. And it's also more sustainable. I see in your design, you're using elements of Japanese culture. So for example, the shoji doors, um, that's also important for sustainability because you're taking pride in local culture, you're perpetuating it, keeping it alive. Um, how about like locally sourced woods? It, it sounds really hard to source local wood in Japan for projects. Actually, this is all mostly local wood. Uh, I use, yes, I use Japanese elements just because of that, because I want to hire uh, more local people and local techniques as well. And I do not want to import any piece from outside as much as I can. So all actually all these furnitures are like Maronia. They're like a Japanese furniture. They're not, they're not cheap. Of course, it's a brand company as well. The furniture, but they're all mostly boot from Japan. They're made in Japan in, there are only like two or three pieces in the whole building that be ordered from outside. And it was in the middle of Corona. So even if we did, wouldn't get there on time, but I would advise any designers who wants to work on sustainability, uh, it is very attractive to use the best out there, like the most famous brands and things like that. But sometimes like adding a little local people who are good at their craft and they know what to do into it, uh, it would be wonderful. You don't have it in the pictures, actually. The client hasn't put those pictures up, but this building on the fourth floor, the office, the partitions between offices are completely Japanese shojis. That is made by a company that is 150-year-old shoji maker in Japan. And instead of using, they wanted glass partitions, and I was like, it's pointless. It echoes the sound anyways, why not? And they're all from trees that they grow, they cut, and they regrow in their they call it uh, the little garden. So it's all completely, I tried my best to use 
things that I know where they come from, where they're going, and how I would recycle them in the future if I could, which I actually wrote a report about that when I handed it to the lead, saying that this material can be used like this and that in the future. That's wonderful. I talked to, last Friday, I talked to a historian who has bought an old Japanese house and he's doing some remodeling. And he, even though the house itself is only 70 years old, he thinks some of the beams in the house, beautiful, weird shaped beams in the, in the ceiling are probably from the 19th century. So this is something that a lot of architects and carpenters in the series have said, this reuse of important pieces of wood, which are very valuable, is quite common tradition in building in Japan. That's so wonderful. It's so nice if we can continue that tradition in modern buildings, right? Definitely. I that That's the goal. I think for new architects, that's the goal. And another goal should be to keep what it is as it is as much as possible. Because this is very odd. I'm not sure if you know, but Japan uh, real estate market is actually 13% only uh, reused. So they're over nearly 90 something, 85 to 90% demolishing and rebuilding because they cannot just go cut the forest, like increasing land size, deforestation is not acceptable here. So that means that they're demolishing and rebuilding. If you want to see how odd this is, US is the opposite. It's around 80% secondhand and only 20%. Japan is number one in the world. That does 85%. Japanese love brand new, brand new. And part of it, designers and the construction companies who want to make profit out of it are responsible. So this, this pressure on, I want to demolish this rebuild in 20 years, it looks perfectly fine, but to, to redo it just, just to be safe, I, I think it's just too much, to be very honest. Yeah. I, we do not need it. As designers, i rather get less profit and be more honest and say, you know what, you can work on the structure and it will give you the same quality. And nowadays, the handmanship, they're just making a lot of profit from cheap material. Why not use something that was 30 years ago, much stronger, much beautiful, and the person who built it actually really loved it and put his heart down to build it for you and use it. Like this picture you're right now sharing, this is actually the media center for Sejingu, for the G8. They wanted the media center. I actually designed this building and they said there is a high chance because they rented the land, they said there is a high chance they're gonna demolish this building in the future. So they wanted to do something a bit interesting but Japanese. So I kind of went around and looked up and you can see this wooden partition there right now. It's made of, actually that's, that's three pieces of wood left from the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the uh, mm, koji. What would you call koji in Japanese? Construction? <laughs> construction, construction, yes. Yes, it's the pieces of wood left from the construction site. And we're like, oh, well, why to throw them away? And then we cut them a little bit cleaner and things like that. And in the end, if you want to demolish, you can take them up and every five piece becomes a puzzle that you give to the kindergarten. So that was the story that they put a stamp on whichever they wanted to give away and then made these puzzles and they gave them to the orphanages and kindergartens in the region of Ise Jingu. So they become like a cube. They put them together with different sizes. So it was supposed to be a little toy plus a, let's say, a beautiful, simple design that doesn't cost anything and comes from wood chips that they would want to burn anyways. Like, this kind of 
think I don't think it needs like a scientist to do to be very honest but not many people <laughs> want to like the second you say it's leftover wood from piece of construction site no one, people look at it differently but if you go there you smell the smell of that fresh wood right there it's completely a different story yeah well you can tell the story before it was in the construction site you can say this was a beautiful cypress tree or hinoki tree <laughs> from the japanese <laughs> alps and just don't mention that part about the construction site right <laughs> It's all part of branding, yes. marketing. <laughs> yes, that's what I think. That's what we did in the end in the brochures. But for getting the sustainability points, we were honest. We are like, yeah, this just we didn't pay. And then when the clients saw the fee for the facade, they were going to build walls, and I was like, walls is too much. Why would you build this open space? Why would you waste building this open space corridor and then just put walls around it? I don't understand the. I don't understand the point at this point. And we're like, so how much does this cost? And then when they saw the fees, they're like, are you sure you put the materials? Like, it's free. <laughs> and they were so happy. <laughs> so of course they would be happy because it helps with the bottom line. I, yes. I love the feel of it because it reminds me of walking through Tori Gates in the shrine, right? When you walk through the red Tori Gates in a shrine exactly. and it has that same kind yes. of feel and the natural light coming in from the roof. I love it. Great design. Thank you. Actually, there's a little surprise by the end of this corridor that you can only see it at 12 p.m. Above it is open and there is a 150 year old bonsai. So only at 12 p.m. it lights up the bonsai and you can see it between I think 11.30 to 12.30 around something around that. After a while it slowly slowly disappears as the shadow comes through. So midday when they come, because in this building there is an exhibition office and cafeteria. Midday when they come for lunch, you can I can see the bonsai, <laughs> and then when you leave, you don't. So there are little surprises hidden around the building. Actually, in this building. Wow, wonderful. Uh, let's talk about another one, and then we'll switch gears and talk about your impact tech work sure. a little bit. Uh, you did this green auto showroom in the Persian Gulf, which I thought was really innovative. It reminded me of one of the areas in Singapore, which I've seen pictures of with all the, the big trees, the artificial oh, yeah. trees, right? Maybe I'm not the best person for this one because my co-founder did this with his friends. Okay. I just helped them with the concept making and things like that. How but about the idea the Aura Mall. The Aura Mall. Is that better to talk about? Can I can I yeah, your can two? Oh one? yes. Oh yeah, the Aura Mall. Uh, Aura Mall. Uh, yes, actually this is in China. It's not built. Uh, however, they were looking to do an exhibition of some sort. Uh, in the middle of the uh, mall themselves and they were wondering what to do and what to not do and I just the mall itself it exists so what do we do with the exhibition and found this factory that uh, had a lot of uh, what would we call it those wrapping papers they have like kind of a, like a wrapping paper for presents that it goes like a bit of an aurora color kind of a thing that they were going out of business and they were not producing, but they had a lot left over. So for concept, I was like, why don't we build these little balloons with these wrapping papers in the middle of the showcase? And we have uh, water 
they had they wanted to do something like a waterfall and they not they didn't want to do a waterfall but they wanted something to help with the temperature control inside the building as it gets really hot in the mall in that area and it's we're not very happy with the cost that goes through uh, for this i would call it the mechanics to cool down the air conditioning to cool down the area so i'm sorry if my vocabulary english vocabulary for architecture is not so good i studied architecture in japan i know all the vocabularies in japanese <laughs> but when it comes to english it goes like what was said to be you know what was, what was air calm so to to heat it and cool it down is quite difficult and their issue was in summer so i was like what about we use these balloons that become they're full of air that they become like a con uh, help conserving the internal temperature and then we have this water mist going through it that cools down uh, the area and they quite actually enjoyed it and liked it we kind of gave this idea out around summer last two years ago around summer it was supposed to be constructed but because of corona the whole project went out the wall and we couldn't even go visit the clients anymore in china it's actually in china so <laughs> so it was it's a great concept, though. I remember many years ago, we went to Calcutta and Delhi. We were traveling around India. We went to Varanasi, and it was mm -hmm. so, so, so horribly hot. But inside the backpacker's guest house where we stayed, the owner had put like it was like a wet system where mm -hmm. on towels it was dripping down and then he had fans and the difference in temperature between the outside and the inside was unbelievable yes. you would have thought there yes. was air conditioning in there so this kind of yes. concept can really reduce energy use and really help to more naturally cool what a great idea Oh, thank you yes yes that's the idea that is supposed to and you can actually even the entrance the fan kind of thing the idea is that they move a little bit so you can control the wind going through it there were times that they said the wind is too hard we can't open the doors and there's some there's not enough wind so they're supposed to go up and down slowly slowly to the direction of the wind to lead it inside the corridor so those are go through every entrance then control it and then you have the internal wind the waterfall that controls the mist kind of like a singapore waterfall the big singapore i mean airport waterfall that actually helps them a lot in cooling down the temperatures at that time so yes it is the idea however in the end of the day we have to see uh i i wonder all the time myself it's like do we need these huge malls to start with we we have to have this huge structure that makes no real actual business local businesses grow and it just it does make job opportunities but it limits everything else in reality it's just a huge amount of storage room that is just brands come in and just enjoy for entertainment so do we need these kind of things why not go back to the old bazaars they used to have in china which are more beautiful more local so it, it, it is it's like a love-hate relationship i can do whatever i can do but in the end of the day i'm like we need this <laughs> exactly yeah. as it is <laughs> i i'm yeah. always interested when i go in like a shopping mall or shopping center in japan in summer or winter that there are so many local people from the surrounding area who come and hang out and drink coffee and go shopping and it it becomes like a kominkan 
and they can they can meet each other, but also they can stay warm or they can stay cool when the weather is not perfect, you know. And I always think that use of the mall is very unique in Japan. It's kind of a community space. But yeah, the idea of overconsumption is definitely a problem in Japan and anywhere around the world of buying and throwing away, buying and throwing away instead of buying to use for longer. And that's the whole consumer culture, right? Yeah, 100%. And I guess Japanese malls are still a bit smaller, consider and compared with the amount of population living in the area. It does make sense to some extent having them around. However, uh, I think China, the projects I did in China for malls, I kind of thought like maybe they're a bit bigger than they need at that point, at that part and things like that. So I guess it's by country and by use, but I 100% agree. Like in Malaysia recently, malls have started uh, urban farming because they have so much space and no clients right now. And so they have started green farming inside the malls themselves. And then they give the fruits or vegetables back to the community by selling to the, the people in the area. That's actually quite an initiative, nice innovative initiatives that I would advise some malls to take if they have the space for it. That's a great idea. And to make better use of all the space, because quite often in a shopping mall or in an in a street, like a shopping street in Japan, you see yes. so many closed shops because there just aren't enough storekeepers. So yeah. I would love to see them offer it to young entrepreneurs uh, to try free rent, try your business here. And that kind of connects to your next idea that we're gonna talk about. <laughs> with Impact Tech is talking about social innovation and entrepreneurship. Can you tell us a little bit about your work? Definitely. So actually, when I was doing sustainable design, I was wondering why architect designers, no one cares about this. This is around like maybe eight years ago. And I got to meet so many interesting people while designing this uh, office called Veal. It's it's Veal Veal Innovation Lab. There are VC from Silicon Valley. We were in Wonderwall and we were working on that project. So I met a lot of interesting startups and I was like, oh wow, I feel like architects are like entrepreneurs because we look at each project as a new business plan, as a new baby, as a new thing we want to do. We design it from zero, we do everything. And somehow I connected so well with all of the entrepreneurs. I sat down, I could talk to them, come up with ideas like, why don't you see, do this and that? Because architects are very good. Like if you're a real designer, you're a good problem solver. That's the reality of it. That's what we do. We don't design like spaceships or anything, but we find problems in our design and we solve it. That's literally what we do as designers. So uh, we started, I, I joined the program by Impact Tech Japan. And after like six months, they asked me if I could help them run the MPO itself, because I had connections to Nippo Foundation as well at that time. And around a year and a half ago, by now it's nearly a year and a half more, I started managing it. And what Impact Tech Japan actually does, it's, uh, it's an MPO that helps social goods. So we recruit startups who are interested in social innovation, like sustainability, education, ecosystem, climate change, anything related to society and social impact. We have a program for them that runs uh, four months, uh, two four months, so around eight months through the year. 
and then in, through the program they understand what's what they're supposed to do what's a business canvas what is teamwork even how do i work with my friends how do i do funding how do i register my company how like even basic things and i decided to make the program mostly like impacting japan actually decided to make the program originally as a bilingual program which it's very rare to find social impact programs in japan that are bilingual or mostly like related to japanese only but we were like you know what we only half of our staff is japanese the other half are foreigners as well so why don't we uh, have guys who want to be more global might more from international point of view perspective join us none of us are perfect anyways japanese <laughs> we are all like broken japanese <laughs> even our japanese staff grow up outside japan so <laughs> she was like i'm not very sure how good my japanese is right now <laughs> so our program aims at bilingual kids who want to make a social change and difference yeah through workshops lectures and things it's like that. great to see your programs and then once i started looking at your website and past programs and i saw so many people who have been guests in the series talking about their social impact entrepreneurship business or idea um so for example dream drive has been through your program my, my mizu echo local uh crust we mori enjoy diversity and innovation to name it through so what you're doing by supporting uh people who have a good idea but maybe want to take it to the next step not sure how um is that the idea that you're kind of coaching them giving them connections um moving them up to the next level is that right yeah uh to be honest, entrepreneurship is something you have, not you, but the person has to do themselves. So if I can give you the, all the resources in the world to you, and in the end, you might fail and not make it. You know what I mean? What I personally do, I build the ecosystem for them. I introduce them to mentors they can choose from. I introduce them to lectures. I introduce them to each other. I make them do PR events. I cannot make them, but ask them if they can do kindly PR events together. <laughs> uh, so the idea is that I want them to collaborate. And another idea is that uh, we find that social impact should not be like, like for example, impact tech is an MPL. I personally don't want social innovators to be NPLs. I have to be because I have to get sponsorship from foundations, but I really wish social impact would be for profit. I'm because automatically in Japan as a social impactor, if you're an MPO, you're like charity case. You have to ask for donations and donations. And I don't want this entrepreneurs to be that. That's why we have them in the program to show them the value of making profit through their ideas, because they're not doing this as a charity case. They're doing it to help the society and they deserve the same profit some other person makes making iPhones or iPads or whatever <laughs> out there it is. So we do give them mentorships we do give them connections as much as i can or we can or an info foundation can but the biggest idea is that if you're a real entrepreneur if you really care about what you're doing you when you come inside the program your brain stops you're like oh yeah wait 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 i have to do this i have to do that too oh, i never thought about this i never met these people i should talk to this person as well so it's it makes you question who you are what you're doing and what you should be doing I have startups who come in and completely change their ideas throughout the program. And I have startups that come in and by when they finish, they have a full product. 
And I'm like, wow, you, how did you do this in four months? And they're like, we don't know. We, we spent two years on Bikun and I don't know how. And the idea is that you see other people do the same goal. They have the same goal as you. And that motivates you on moving forward even more. That motivates you to try to get the results to see if it's worth your time. It's worth everyone's time. You want to be for profit in the end of the programs. Yes. So I build the ecosystem for them to somehow survive in this tough, tough world for entrepreneurs. Because right now, if you shake a tree, two entrepreneurs fall down. Promise. That's the reality of what I see every day right now, unfortunately. So what they achieve throughout the program is that is their skill. It's not mine. It has nothing to do with me. It's 100% their own skill. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, one thing I do often talk to entrepreneurs about, uh, myself included, is finding funding. And like you said, you want more entrepreneurs to not be nonprofits, to not depend on charity or CSR donations, but quite a lot of social do-gooders or environmental do-gooders do survive on crowdfunding or uh government grants or different kind of local community funding. I was talking to a guy who's helping to revive a rural destination for tourism, and he's using the government funding, making such a great program, but he has no idea how to take it to the next step because he's been so dependent only on funding. And the idea from all the people he's working with is, you should have government funding. This should not be a for-profit business. So changing that idea, even from the customer or from other businesses, from being like a charity, a nonprofit, to a business that does good, seems like a big gap in Japan. Do you find that as well? Yes, 100%. I think people look at social innovation as an MPO. They believe you do, for you to do social innovation, you have to be an MPO or Ipan Shadan. You have to be kind of a foundation helping people. They do not see it as a, they see social and capital completely different. They see capital as profit and social as you're just helping the society as an MPO, your nonprofit, non-governmental organization who survives upon donations. And I 100% agree with you. That is the worst thing that can happen to an entrepreneur, to be stuck in a situation that you are looked at as a charity case. The second that happens, you will lose your credibility. So throughout the program, we have this thing called the business model, business canvas model. And I get questions, why don't we do the ones for more like impact investments or impact social investments and things like that. And one of the reasons I, I say, yeah, of course, we can do those too. Why not? And I share the Excel PDF with them. But in reality, let, let's be honest, those things kind of consider all these grants. And I want them to think as a businessman, as a businesswoman, I want them to think that you're running a business. You have a business development. It's not just fixing that city. What would you do with that city to build the next city? What would you do from the next city to go to the next city? <laughs> this is the actual business canvas. That's the business model that I'm hoping they would take. I grew up in a very, I would say, Sparta family. 
I think the way I talk is very obvious. That's that's my how my dad used to talk to me as a kid. So we grew up in a very Sparta family. And when we set our minds in doing something, we believe that do not let anything come between. Achieve it and then evaluate it. And the issue with MPO is that the smallest thing can move you. The smallest the social impact on MPOs is that the smallest thing can affect that balance. You, one of your sponsors just doesn't feel like showing up and that infects <laughs> your balance. This is the charity case, as you were saying. So for social impact to have an actual impact, it needs to be for profit. And Japan is way behind in this. Unfortunately, the society itself does not understand the need for that profit. Yeah. One of one of the things I'm I'm always so happy to see, but I think this is maybe part of the the problem in thinking about uh, businesses that do good is Japan is actually one of the most charitable nations. Uh, people in Japan give the most per capita to anywhere in the world. So I think there is a very embedded idea that. If you're doing something good for community, or you're doing something good for environment, that it should be a charity. It shouldn't be a company. So this idea that being a company making money is kind of dirty or unethical, yes. it's not true. Absolutely, you need money to continue. But that there is that kind of ideology, right? Yes, 100%. If you want to grow, you need capital. And for capital, you need profit. Uh, charity has a cap. It gives you a cap to succeed maybe for the first, I don't know, one or two years. But the second you want to grow, you want to make a business plan for next year, you need that profit. You need the capital to survive. And 100% agree because Japanese do see, they find capitalism to not be a social movement. And they see profit, as I said, as capitalism. So that automatically kind of brings their social goodness down to some extent. So even some startups who are registered at KK or social innovators or registered at KK, not Ipan Shadan or MPO. KK means for profit organization in Japan, for people who don't know. They are actually scared and they keep on saying, but they're using every profit for good you're you're doing this with the profit and i'm like you don't have to explain for the profit your profit is for your growth you need the profit to make better change to become better and so that is 100 true there is this ideology of profit it's not for social good um, um, it's very unfortunate i found that was like very sad to hear but yes it's true <laughs> I think it's it's even harder than usual right now because mm. there is no inbound. There is no influx of international visitors. And the influx of international visitors are definitely more engaged looking for sustainable products, sustainable services. And so a lot of the businesses who are trying to do sustainable things and getting sustainable seeking customers are at a disadvantage right now because the the local Japanese population is not quite there yet right that they're they're there yeah. they're gonna be there but they're not quite there yet so in terms of uh, products or services that you can sell to normal customers 
who don't have to think about the sustainability side of it, maybe they're having a little bit easier time to get some traction. Are you finding that with the companies you're working with? Oh, this is such a big, that's such a nice question. So about, as you said, right now for the inbound and the corona, this is such a plus and minus. I kind of don't know how to define it because I have startups who work in inclusivity, for example, enjoy themselves. Diversity, inclusivity. I had startups who were helping immigrants find jobs from war-torn countries in Japan, or I had startups uh, helping local businesses by introducing them for, to international or like foreign-speaking language uh, staff that would bring them more clients and more like revenue through that. You know what I mean? And because of Corona, most of these startups are looking for a new business plan. There is the business there, it's gone. Automatically, there are no tourists. So why would someone hire an English speaker? So why should we be inclusive Why when there is no one to be inclusive for? That's That becomes a question. Unfortunately, that's part of it. But however, the same Corona has brought such a big point on sustainability and SDGs that I have never seen before in Japan. And I work in this industry and the past 10 years is all over the place. How do we make this cheaper? How do we make this more sustainable? How do I use less energy here and there? And it's, it's such a such a great, I don't know, it's such a plus and minus. Like, I don't know if I should be in love with it or I should hate it at this point. But uh, my startups, that startups through our program, it's really half and half. We have the guys for diversity who are doing, and then we have the guys who work in sustainability and they're finding clients finally that actually the CSR is spending money on sustainability. And this kind of ESG's mindset funding, even. You know what I mean? So, I would say that is, it's, it's, it's not a concrete number, but 40, 60, 40% is affected negatively, 60% is affected positively. I would go through that. It's, it's such, a, such an interesting question, actually. <laughs> well, when, when I talk to uh, businesses that usually rely on tourism, um, for example, there was one restaurant, they were making big moves to offer vegan udon, vegan dishes. Mm -hmm. And then last year, at the end of last year, when I went and they didn't have any of the vegan options anymore. And I said, why not? And they said, because there's no inbound. And I was like, no, but you were moving in the right direction for all your customers, not just the inbound, but without... <laughs> Without that sustainable seeking demand, they just didn't see the point. They went back to what they were doing before, you know. But uh, other companies, which are connected to tourism, are using this time to kind of think more about sustainability and what will tap into this demand going forward in future tourism. So that's really interesting, right? Yes, 100%. I, I remember there was a startup. Um, they kind of switched a little bit, but their idea was to bring remote tourism. So people who could not travel, they can still experience Japan through remote tour tourism. For example, you want a Japanese special sake. You can order it online. You send it to you and they take you through a tour online, live tour online while you drink the sake, for example. You know what I mean? 
so that is a creativity so we do say inbound but there was a limit to inbound you should have money visa issues and things like that the other way around a lot of these little uh getting getting they're quite it was they're quite far remote tourist areas can become more creative why not do a digital remote tourism why not connect yourself to people outside the country who would never know about you who would never travel to your place why not have your english website up that you can sell outside because everyone in the world now is they're they want they're looking for something different as well why not start your remote tourism at the people who would not pay before for such things now they're open to it they would pay and they would like if you told someone remote tourism watch isaki brewery live online five five years ago for i don't know 20 bucks how many people would actually want to you know what i mean but now if you say that just how many people will apply for it you know i'm gonna drink the sake at home from japan and watch the live well wow yeah sure why not there have been some as you said like people going online that never would have gone online otherwise right like we have a kagura performance in hiroshima and usually they perform on stage to small groups and now they have transitioned to have live performance online and now thousands of people around the world know about kagura they never would have known about before so yeah definitely there's some advantage right yeah exactly that's why i was like it's such a bad feeling i don't know to love it to hate it it's it's like (laughs) but it was a push needed to be very honest joy it was a push that we needed to have and it's a good lesson for us to learn that just because we are bored we don't take a plane somewhere and just sit somewhere and then come back without a destination now we travel you want to make that co2 emission throughout the flight you really need to want to be there you nearly make a positive impact by going and coming that's that's the idea in reality towards and and corona taught us a lot of lessons as well in generally things that we could have at home that we don't need to go through a train and transportation fees and all those things we could have done them at home now we do them at home faster better you spend more time with your family so it is definitely a love-hate relationship (laughs) at least for me personally definitely uh talking about uh giving advice and training to people with good ideas startups what what do you see as common hurdles so is it they don't have their idea clear enough or they haven't tapped into like local trends so there's no understanding of what they want to do like what are some common problems that you see with some of the good ideas but maybe need more work ideas uh i see good question uh from there some are about the ideas themselves and some about the entrepreneur uh, him or uh, he or she I think entrepreneurship should be a mindset. You should be looking for whys and you should be looking for problem solving. You should be after thing. You should, your mind should be busy constantly until the business is stable and running. You should be constantly. And however, unfortunately right now, as there are a lot of acceleration programs out there, a lot of the startups stop hustling. I think hustling, Hustling is quite important. It's like on a, on a positive sense, hustling is quite important for entrepreneur. Like 
Corona is up, of course. You don't, you cannot go to events, maybe. But there is LinkedIn out there. There's Facebook out there. You can find people who are interesting, read their articles, look them up. Uh, I feel like a lot of the good ideas are stopped because some of excuses. I think it, real entrepreneurs shouldn't have excuses. Corona is not shouldn't be an excuse at this point. I don't use it personal as an excuse myself. I really want to. I wish I could, <laughs> but I think they should start hustling find new ways you cannot meet people find new ways ask your mentor to introduce you to someone talk to someone and ask them how they can help you to introduce there the world is a connected place everyone is connected somehow to something they can give you some point to get connected that's the biggest issue i had is that a lot of the startups i worked with want to be told so how do we hustle so I didn't know what do we do with here or there. I'm like, you're an entrepreneur. I did not know. It's not not an acceptable excuse at all. It's not something that this is not a school or anything. It's not something that you should even mention. You didn't know that means you should search, you should ask, you should go after it. And someone shouldn't come with a result to you. That's number one. And I would say for the idea itself, lacking the because when you're an entrepreneur, you see the world around you as your, you yourself. Are there is a lack of criticism a lot of the younger generation they're a bit worried about being criticized so the second you criticize and say maybe this is that they take it personally they criticism is a positive thing because if someone spends time enough to criticize your idea that means they care enough to think about the idea second you present an idea and you get a lot of positive response that means it's going to fail because that means no one is thinking about the idea itself they're just telling you something to pass you on there is no way you present your brand new idea and business model to a group of people and everyone is going to be like wow well done we understand completely like you you're a genius you're a unicorn go home <laughs> you know <laughs> so the idea is accept criticism with a grain of salt and appreciate it because those if you get at least 50% criticism, that means your idea is not on a right track. That means it's attracting people to think about it, to criticize it. Wow. That is, that is great very, advice. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very important thing that entrepreneurs, I think, or even designers don't think about it. They just, first thing that comes to their mind, it's on the paper and it's just done and it's beautiful and it's perfect. Do not tell me no, yes, I'm perfect. <laughs> No, please question yourself. Go talk to your worst enemy and ask them what they think. <laughs> I would really do this person. That is real. That is real. Tough love. I love it. Um, one, of, one, of, one of the advice I gave um, to a destination of small business people, they were trying new things during coronavirus before the tourists came back. And I yes. said, one thing they probably can do now is to get online and connect to other people around the world who are doing exactly. similar things to them. So if they're a potter, connect on Instagram to all the other potters that you like, make comments, like what they do, and hopefully they will like yours. So creating networks, creating connections. Um, for me, this talk show series has been an amazing wealth of information, but also a great way to connect to so many people around Japan doing interesting things that I'm passionate about too. So doing that networking, like you mentioned as well for mentors and the mentor introducing them to someone, 
that is part of the program, I'm sure, which is one of the most valuable features, is it? Yes, uh, we do have mentors throughout the program. We kind of match them up uh, through the mentor, looking at their pitch decks and things like that. And if they're interested, they contact them. After one or two meetings, we ask the startups if they want to continue with this mentor or they want to pick someone else. However, these mentors, each one has a specific criteria, like specific professional background. So it can only help you, for example, in a but they cannot help you in b c and d so for b and c and d it comes the hustle you talk to this mentor who's well connected all around the place as well and say hey i'm looking for b and c and d so can you help me or even connect with me say fire i'm looking for someone like this do you know anyone that you can introduce and i will look it up if i don't know if i know i will just introduce them to someone and connect them however this generation as you say joey they have this thing called uh like not just generation our generation as well like they have this thing called internet and it's amazing how everyone is connected to this internet and just doing a small research and sending a linkedin message to someone can open you a door don't be scared of it just go ahead jump in what's the worst that can happen get ignored ah well it's, it's like not doing anything getting ignored i guess <laughs> you know what i mean uh, no, it's so true. And, you know, be polite and ask, just try. There's no, there's no harm in trying. And if you're polite and you do it in a nice way, even if someone says no, they have some seed of an idea from you in mind. And maybe later on down the line, they will think of you or they will connect to you or they will work with you, right? I mean, it's it's all building, building for the future. Yes, definitely. They're building blocks. And I would advise to treat startups to treat other startups startups as clients they might become their clients a lot of the a lot of the startups or entrepreneurs look at other entrepreneurs like competition or friend or thing. i'm like no anyone else except you is your client so <laughs> so open up your minds look at them as a client treat them like you would treat your best friend as a client so that's that's another advice i would give start from small people around you can be your clients yeah, that that being humble and and just accepting that other people are doing similar things and not feeling bad, but actually supporting what they're doing and saying, oh, what you're doing is great. I'm trying to do that, too. You know, like, don't don't have this rivalry feeling. That's such great advice. It's really important. Yes. Actually, one thing I have to say throughout the program, I Kind of maybe it's a bit of an evil thing I do. <laughs> I don't know, but I do filter the startup. I normally take thirteen, but not everyone graduates throughout the program. I look at the way they proceed, how they treat each other, how they work together, how they talk to each other, how do they treat the program. I just give them a set of rules to start with, and I don't say this is our mandatory, but I look who goes through these rules and follows through. Like respect other people, respect your other friends, work together, collaborate, be part of the community, attend, give us grow, grow in your community. Those things I look very carefully, and I actually have picked out startups in the program before because I did not see them be valuable to some such stage. I think social innovation is a very sensitive topic and coming just for profit and not be considerate to people around you, you just 
means you don't need to be a social innovator. You can just be an innovator. They're all all over the place as well. Social innovator is a sensitive topic. So yes, I do I do go through that as well. You're hundred percent right. Yeah, absolutely. You have to walk the walk if you're gonna、yes. talk the talk, right? Hundred percent agree. Well, that's our time. Thank you so much, Fada. What a wonderful talk! And I learned so much about your beautiful architecture designs, but I also learned about your wonderful innovation designs and your support of other entrepreneurs. So, thank you so much for all you're doing. Thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you for doing all that wonderful research. I- I actually forgot about my own articles, and thank everyone for joining. If anyone is here, I cannot see exactly how many, but、uh, whoever is here, and we recently opened the Social Change Makers Five. So, anyone interested, please go apply to for the program to become one of Social Change Makers. Thank you for joining today. What was your favorite part? Why don't you write a question or comment below, and I'll reply, or I'll get the guests to reply as well. I always appreciate the comments and questions. So if you have anything to say, make sure you write it below. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great day. Take care.